I indulged in drug activities, crime. The drugs, counterfeit money, and guns led me down a path that resulted in my going to jail from college. With an application for graduation on the wall, I ended up in a jail cell, and it was a very shocking and sobering and disturbing transition for me. Here I am looking at graduating from college, and then I'm incarcerated. Marlon Big Dog Brown, once a drug addict, homeless, hopeless on the streets of Memphis, but now a vital part of the Service Over Self ministry in the Binghampton area of town and also the founder of Big Dog Ministries. Welcome to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. My name is Jeff Patrick, and I'm a pastor down at the Memphis Union Mission, sitting in today for my good friend, Byron Tyler. Welcome, Marlon, to Mid-South Viewpoint. Thank you for having me. You and I have known each other for 18 years now. What I want you to do today is share your story, starting out what happened and how we came together. It is a 30-minute show, so I'm going to make it brief. Born and raised in Millington, Tennessee, first nine years of my life, I lived in a home that was a four-room house with no running water, no plumbing inside. You can imagine what bathroom and shower looks like. Shower was non-existence. All the things that go along with poverty and dysfunction at the time— Um, My mother was sick with cancer. She died when I was nine. They buried her when I was 10. It was right at my birthday time. My stepfather was raising me. He was an alcoholic. There was not the type of nurturing guidance and support that one would need to be healthy and go in the right direction. So I deviated very early in life to misbehaving and indulging in activities that are less than healthy and respectable. Excelled in basketball, played a lot of that. One of the sports you can play by yourself, a lot of running, jumping, and shooting in my spare time. So I developed uh, basketball skills that were worthy of quite a few scholarship offers. As a junior in high school, I had 22 scholarship offers to various colleges in Mm. the States. Two weeks before my senior season started, uh, was beaten and left for dead walking from practice. A lot of rumors about what happened, you know, jealous athletes, the Ku Klux Klan, the fact that I was the first black man to be king of my high school and all the race riots and conversations surrounding that. To this day, I'm not certain who did what they did to me, but I had a concussion contusion, cracked rib, cracked wrist. Uh, my left leg was beaten to the point where I couldn't walk, and I wear two very long scars on my leg now that I still experience pain from, uh, which altered my plans for college, and those 22 scholarships went away. My high school coach was a, an, an alumnus of Christian Brothers College, and he connected with some people there and got me in at Christian Brothers. But after a couple of years of playing there, and I did quite well in basketball there, I uh, had some issues with academics and various other things that made me leave the area. Even though I had a four-year scholarship to Christian Brothers, it was just wise for me after two years to get out of Memphis. The drug activities, the deviant, illegal behaviors had it such that I was a little afraid to stick around Memphis out of fear of what might happen to me. So I went to Texas and kind of got into the same old stuff, you know, even though I had a plan to try out at Lamar University and play ball there and enter school. After one semester there, I dropped out of school there and began to sell drugs and do crime and ended up as a disc jockey in a club. And looking back, the fortunate opportunity and privilege to go to the military instead of jail. So I went to the Army after being in the Army a little while, smoking dope and doing things that I didn't stop doing with fights and positive drug tests, got kicked out of the military, back to Texas for the same old life that I ran from and 
Through the assistance of one of my relatives, I was pulled out of Texas and sent to Jackson, Tennessee, to Lane College, where my aunt had connections with the president of the school there. And went to Lane College, standout ball player again, athlete of the year and top grades and a bunch of awards, Coca-Cola Bottling Company, Coors Beer Company, and many others gave me athletic awards. And I was on some presidential scholars list and life was going great again. But then I did what I've always done. I indulged in drug activities, crime. The drugs, counterfeit money, and guns led me down a path that resulted in my going to jail from college. With an application for graduation on the wall, I ended up in a jail cell, and it was a very shocking and sobering and disturbing transition for me. Here I am looking at graduating from college, and then I'm incarcerated. Going from having a bunch of money and friends and fun to I'm an inmate. Case drug on for a year plus, got some probation and some time from that incident. And once I got out of jail there in Jackson, Tennessee, came back to Millington and just kind of gave up on life. I never made the announcement that I had given up on life. But to look at a potential college graduate with athletic and academic potential, finding himself homeless, it wouldn't take a real genius to understand that I had given up with construction skills and academic and athletic abilities. I remember many instances sharing drugs with people that couldn't do the math on the purchase of the dope. We have $10 together. I have $7. You have three. I should get a larger percentage mathematically than you. And I just couldn't get the simplicity of that over to some of the people that I was around. The opportunities, the privilege, the talents, the gifts was so different, and I felt oftentimes that I was squandering and wasting my God-given talents and ability. I got high with people that couldn't read well. I got high with people that weren't as physically capable as I was. I got high with people that didn't have the connections that I had, and those things served as ways to convict me of the waste that I was indulging in as far as gifts, talents, and opportunities went. But I beat myself up for a long time, entertaining the thoughts that had been deeply embedded in my mind growing up that I shouldn't have been born. I'm not worth anything. The world hates you. You're unlovable. At the same time, being a star athlete in high school and college, receiving praise and being written up in the paper and seen on TV, there was a group of people that loved me and thought I was awesome. But then there was a group of people that didn't like me as much. I was the outside child. I was the dysfunctional one. I was the prodigal. Just imagine the person that you depend on, trust, supposedly receive the greatest encouragement and support from looking you in your eyes and telling you you're nothing. You'll never be anything. You shouldn't have Mm. been born. The world would be a better place if you weren't here. I hate when you come to my house. We do oftentimes share stories and teach people about the comparisons of a earthly father and our father in heaven. And if Mm -hmm. you can think about my father in heaven saying to me what my stepfather said to me, you would understand the difficulty I had in reconciling. Oh, you're an awesome. We love you. Can I get your autograph? And I hate you. Wish you wouldn't come to my house. You shouldn't have been born. Mm -hmm. You remind me of an infidelity that I don't like to talk about. And that struggle, reconciling those two views of me, led me deeper into my addiction once I began to do drugs and alcohol and crime. I really felt 
oftentimes that I would do the world a favor if I destroyed myself. For once in my life, everybody will be happy. Everybody will like me. Nobody will have to deal with me anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm gone. So those nights where I contemplated suicide with thoughts of making people proud and happy of me, and it's just a very twisted, I want to say ignorant But so many people deal with mental issues and the psychological struggles of worth, self-worth and self-esteem that I don't think ignorance is the proper representation. But it's such a deeply entrenched struggle psychologically that people often carry this mission out of destroying themselves. I won't go deep into my suicide contemplations, but I had two incidents where I had loaded guns uh, in my hand, on my head, about to pull the trigger, and I just couldn't. So after coming through Christian Brothers College and going to military in Elaine College and giving up on life and dealing with all that homeless, drug, crime, beating stuff, I ended up in jail in Memphis down at 201 Poplar. And when I got out of jail, I didn't have anywhere to go because I had gone to jail homeless. It only took $84 to bond me out of jail, but I sat in jail for almost a year because nobody would come and spend that $84. My little sister actually finally came and bonded me out of jail. And if you can just pause there for a minute in your mind and think about a family member or a friend who's incarcerated, and it costs $84 to get them out, how long do you leave them in there? Probably not a year. But be that as it may, I'm still thankful that my sister got me out when she did. But when I got out, I had nowhere to go, had destroyed a bunch of relationships, And I walked from 201 Poplar to the Memphis Union Mission. And I think 15 minutes at most after getting out of jail is when I met you. I usually tell us about 20 minutes getting out of jail, you and I met. And so I'm working in my office that died and getting ready, trying to move in. And you come in with this great idea. What did you want to do? Well, when I went to jail, I was working for a paint company. So I knew how to paint really well. And I painted in exchange for money or drugs, depending on the occasion. And your office needed painting. And I volunteered to paint your office because that's what I do. I do it well. I did it right before I went to jail. I was excited about painting again and confident that I could make someone proud of my paint work. And I knew because I hadn't decided that I was done smoking dope yet. I knew that if I painted this whole office, you would pay me some money and I could go get some dope and get high again. That's been 18 years. Have I ever paid this you for that? 18 years <laughs> later, I have not received a dime from you for that paint job. <laughs> you know, here's something interesting about that story is that there was a man named Mike in the jail that said, when you get out, go to Memphis Union Mission. If I could, real briefly, in jail, Mike and I playing chess together, and we talked a lot about how a lot of the guys around us didn't have a plan for re-implementing themselves into society or doing anything positive going forward, whether it was the drug gang thing, and I want to re-enter it and do it better, or the absence of previous education, goal-driven mindsets. We didn't figure all that out. But there were very few people in jail with us who wanted to do something different and better. And I expressed to Mike while playing chess one day, when I get out here, I do not want to do drugs. I do not want to do crime. I want to get back on track and do something positive. And Mike said, go to the Memphis Union Mission, ask for Papa Smurf mm-hmm. and tell him Mike Denman sent you. And I walked into the mission and did just that. 
and Papa Smurfs in the most lackadaisical, unconcerned manner that one could speak to an individual said to me, sign that paper right there. And he walked <laughs> off. Well, what I signed was a waiting list to get into the Memphis Union Mission Rehab Program. And there were only seven names on it, so it really wasn't a wait. And it's a few days later, they called me in and interviewed me and put me in the rehab program. I think I was out of jail eight to 10 days before I was actually in rehab. Now, coming into the mission, coming into the program, you were not a believer in Jesus Christ. You knew about him, but you really weren't a follower. Yeah. I mean, in my family, you know, people going to church and you were raised around Christian stuff and forced to go on Easter and Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. And you see and hear of the deacons and the pastors that have outside children and you see them drinking with your dad. And it's not that serious of a Christian reputation or image. So the Jesus thing wasn't something that was deeply ingrained in me, although I had heard and I had done my Easter speech and I'd been to the churches and Mm -hmm. sat there undesirably through these long, boring sermons and didn't live it, didn't receive it, didn't teach it, didn't even believe it. But something happened at the program out at Calvary College. What happened? <laughs> yeah, so I, I got in the Memphis Union Mission program, and while at the colony, which is the second phase of the program, you spend a few days at the mission, I think about 30 days at the mission, mm-hmm. then you go out to Calvary Colony. While out at the colony, about 40 guys in rehab, and this same old story, I mean, about half of them had GED or less education. It was a lack of motivation, ability to read, and, and I was about to graduate from college, so I could read. It was that simple. So being able to read the Bible and the Devo books and the Heart of the Problem, MRT stuff, I was oftentimes helping other guys with their stuff because I could read. And I think Pastor Reggie saw that as an interest in the program and in Jesus. And he brought me in his office one day and he walked me through a long, boring analogy of man and his sin and his attempt to get back to him. And he drew this little simple diagram, a plank of good works and a plank of this or that. And the man falls short. And the only way man can get back to God is through Jesus. And um, if I could shorten it some, he asked me at some point, seems like after about an hour, an hour and a half of rambling about <laughs> Jesus and, and non-interesting conversations about life and salvation, hey, bow your head and repeat after me. And he takes me through this long, boring prayer. And at the end of it, I'm saying, come into my heart and accept you as my Savior and all this stuff. And man, I just had to be honest with him at the moment. After all of that teaching and prayer, I don't believe, I don't believe in that. I don't feel any way different. I'm kind of tired of being in your office. Let me out of here was kind of my stance. And he pushed harder to the point that I've figured out that if I wanted out of his office, it was a wise thing to challenge him on what he was teaching me. So I made an agreement with him. I'm going to read what you tell me to read. I'm going to do what this reading says I should do. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to come back and show you that this doesn't work. Well, I think by that time... Pastor Reggie had already figured that I was a very logical, sequential thinker. So he gave me this book by Lee Strobel called A Case for Christ. And in Mm. the book, Lee's wife becomes a Christian and Lee being a lawyer set out to disprove Christ's existence by a very logical, methodical method through which he became a believer because the evidence was overwhelming that Christ logically existed and the Bible is logically true. It would take a large imagination to imagine that Christ doesn't exist with the amount of proof that Lee Strobel came up with. And through that book, I became a believer, a real believer. Yeah, I accepted Christ in a little prayer, but it wasn't authentic. But from reading that book, I became an authentic believer. And then I read the Bible. 
after reading that book, I became a believer and I began to read the Bible and try to do what it says. And before I had read it all, I came across this verse in James that says, not to be just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Yeah. Do what it says. And that, to me, propelled me forward in my Christian walk. Do what it says, not just read it, believe it, study it, know it, just quote it. And then James 2, 14, about through 17 or 20. Give a brother a coat if he's cold and you got two. Feed a man if he's hungry, if he needs food. And in the practicality of doing the Bible, feeding people, putting clothes on them, helping the homeless was that thing that lit my fire to become a sold-out, dedicated, committed Christian, man. Those few little mm. verses put me on track to be who I am today. So you graduate the program, you get out, you find a job with an organization called Service Over Self. And I remember you telling me that you couldn't believe this guy handed you the keys to everything, knowing that, you know, who you were and what you had done and literally put you in charge of tools or something like that. Yeah. So I uh, got a job with a guy who worked for Service Over Self through the recommendation from somebody in the program, Stefan. Can't remember Stefan's right. last name, but Stefan told me about a guy he knew that worked for Service Over Self contact. And when you get out, he does construction. So I got in touch with him. He gave me a few little construction projects around his home. And then one day he asked me about my life. Where you live? What do you do? And I told him, hey, I'm homeless. Just got out of rehab. I'm staying downtown at a friend's house. Don't like to stay down there because they do crack at the house. And I just got out of rehab for crack. I come to work when the sun comes up and I stay at work until the sun goes down as a way of staying away from where I was living because they were doing crack there and I don't do crack anymore. And I told him a little bit about my history and he went over to SOS and talked to the director. I'm assuming he was satisfied with the work I had done. And he went over there, I'm assuming, and told him, hey, he does decent construction work. He's homeless. He wants to go right, do forward, go forward, do right. Can we give him a job? I submit this in my thinking because of this. Even though... Each week, I would get part of the money we agreed on for the job. Say that we agreed on $900 for this job. Each week, I would get one or $200 mm -hmm. of that $900. When we got down to the end of the $900, there was still some work to be done. And he hadn't agreed to pay me any more money. So I continued to come at sunup and stayed to sundown, thinking I was not going to get paid because I had gotten all the money already. But it was a way of staying away from where the dope was being smoked, and it was helping me stay sober. I think he saw that as a dedication and a commitment and a character issue, finishing the job even though there was no money. I don't think he saw that as me using that job as a way of staying sober. Be that as it may, I got the job at SOS. The director came, spoke to me, gave me the job. Shortly after starting to work there, kind of put me in charge of tools and construction. Now, I had a construction background, and one of the things I had just gone to jail for was stealing tools on a construction <laughs> job site. So I found myself in the shop one day looking around for the cameras. There must be cameras in this shop with the thousands of dollars worth of tools in here, and I have access to them with my background. So to keep myself sober, straight, free, I went to the director at the time and said, man, I feel like this is a setup. Y'all know what I used to do, and y'all gave me the keys to this shop. I don't see the cameras, but I know y'all must have them out there. And he said, there are no cameras. We trust you. Through Christ, your previous sins have been washed away. We're giving you a new lease on life. We trust you. You're free to do right. You're free to do wrong. And I was blown away by mm. 
the acceptance, the forgiveness, and the opportunity to do right or do wrong. The trust and the freedom in that made me go overboard trying to show them I am trustworthy. I can handle this. I'm going to cross the T's and dot the I's, and I'm going to invite you into my space for my own good. I'm going to show you that I'm doing right. And to this day, I think I still annoy the current director with the excessiveness in which I invite him into the things that I do, not just for his accountability, because he doesn't press me about much for my own. Mm -hmm. Because 18 years into sobriety, Jeff, I don't fully trust me yet. So you're working for SOS, but then something began to take place. That heart call to get out and do for others that people would not do for you when you were homeless, that started what is known today as Big Dog Ministries. Tell me about Big Dog Ministries for a minute. So as a new Christian, I was working for a ministry, and I was in Bible study in churches all the time, and if, oftentimes people asked me to speak, and I was reading Christian books, and I was going to hear some awesome Christian speakers, and people around me were pushing me to this Christian stuff to help me grow. It was genuine interest, and I was a lot of one-on-one teaching, and I kept hearing people talk about helping the less fortunate, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the downtrodden, the alien, uh, the homeless, the indigenous, the prostitute, the gangbanger, whatever, help, help, help. But when I started to ask people, how do you do this? How do you help the poor, the orphan, the stranger, the downtrodden, the prostitute, the homeless? I kept getting the same answer. Too often I got, I don't know those people, heard of four sermon series, and this ignited my starting the ministry. I heard a four-sermon series about helping the less fortunate in our society. And all those scriptures about widow, orphan, stranger, downtrodden, alien were preached. So I cornered this speaker after night four and told him a little bit about where I came from, the struggle I was having, and what I wanted to do. And I said, can you tell me how to start a ministry, a street ministry to the people in the street? And he said, I don't know any of the people that I preach about And I decided at that moment that I would start the Big Dog Street Ministry and just fail until I figured it out. I just figured that through trial and error, through experiences of being homeless, drug addict, and poor from a dysfunctional home, I had a leg up on starting ministry. I mean, I say 18 years later, I'm still trying to figure it out. I've learned a few things, Mm -hmm. but I know that from testimony of people that I've helped. I've helped a few people too. So my frustration with the language not being accommodated by the actions of some of my Christian friends caused me to start the Big Dog Street Ministry. If somebody's interested in helping, how can they get involved? What would you ask them to do to help you? I think it's real simple. Several things. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are ministries doing ministry to the poor, to the homeless, to the indigenous, to the prostitute, to the gangbanger, to the incarcerated. Partner with one of those ministries to get a feel for where you fit in. You can also just do it like I did with William Larkett. William Larkett was walking down the street. He had a grapefruit size knot on his neck. I pulled up next to him. I said, hey, man. And in telling that story later about what happened with William Larkett, I get that question. How do you do ministry like that? And it's as simple as saying, hey, man, my name is, what can I help you with? How are you struggling? What do you need? You can just boldly step into people's lives knowing that if you have, my wife hates this, If you have your salvation in order, the fear of injury or death while trying to do mystery is non-essential. 
yeah, I want to be wise and careful and thoughtful and plan and be, take consideration that I'm the head of a household and the provider for a family. Mm-hmm. But if you fully trust in God, you cannot shorten or lengthen your time here on earth. It's already a time and a date picked for Jeff Patrick and Marlon Brown are going to leave this earth and you can't alter that. So walk boldly. Don't reinvent the wheel. Partner with some ministries is already doing what you want to do and let God lead you deeper into that one or out on your own doing something else or boldly step up to people that, you know, have struggles and ask them, how can I help you? If they give you answers that you can't deal with now, you receive counsel and advice from people that are doing it. Figure it out. Be willing. This is the biggest one here. Be willing to fail repeatedly on your way to finding out how to do something. I often tell people about the Wright brothers, man. They did not fly that plane on the first 100 attempts. It took the 100 to get to the 101 Mm -hmm. where it actually flew. Failure is the platform on which we build our success almost always. Marlon, I know men who've done the things that you've done in the past. I work at the mission. I'm around them every day. But there's very few people who I know that do what you do. So while I know men that have done what you've done, very few are actually out doing what you do. You are to me, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man's in Christ, he becomes a new creature, a new creation. Old things really do pass away. Behold, all things become new. One of my favorite stories, you've heard it. So I'm coming home from mine and your favorite place in Bahay, the Seafood Junction, <laughs> coming down, I believe it's 78, and traffic is backing up, and there's this car full of kids that pull off the ramp somewhere because traffic's backing up, and they realize they don't want to do that, and so they cut through the grass, and they go down in the valley, and they get stuck, and so so here's self-righteous Jeff looking down at them thinking they got what they deserve. They should have known better than that. And I was just so, I don't want to say tickled, but I just, that's what they get. And then I looked over in this little green truck with an SOS emblem on the side of it, which was you. You get out and you help these people get out of the mess that they had made. Boy, conviction set all over me that night. I looked at my wife, you know, look, there's Marlon right there. You know, it's incredible. That's the Marlon Brown I know. That's the big dog I know. So if you want to know more about Marlon Big Dog Brown, you can look him up on Facebook. You can look him up on the Internet. You can visit SOS. But Marlon, thank you so much for coming out today. I hope people look up what you're doing and they get more involved. Thank you for stopping in and listening with us. God bless you and have a great day. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint is brought to you by Navage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know, the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. You know the things in Memphis here. What are we breathing? Well, if you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navaj report feeling healthier. Now with cold and flu season just around the corner, why not make Navaj part of your daily health routine? Experience what it's like to truly breathe better, sleep deeper, and feel healthier. Go ahead and visit Navaj.com. That's Navaj.com. Or you can find Navaj at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Target. Navaj, N-A-V-A-G-E. 